welcome to Umbrella Rebellion. I'm Marcy. And I'm Dee. We are finding healing after leaving a cult. We will be discussing abuse and personal experience with the ATI, IBLP, and fundamental churches. Trigger warning. This podcast may contain descriptions of various forms of abuse. Please take care for your safety and well-being while you are listening. If the content becomes too much for you to handle, please turn this off. We hope to expose harmful teachings that lead to and justify abuse. With the hope that those that are experiencing abuse can find support and escape from it. Okay, so let's get this party started. <laughs> yes, instead of visiting and having fun. <laughs> Thanks for joining us this week on the Umbrella Rebellion. Today, we are going to talk to Marcy about her history and how she started into the whole IBLP ATI fundamental cult arena. So, welcome, Marcy. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so let's just dive in. So tell me, how did your family come to be associated or involved with ATI and IBLP? Um, well, conversely to your story, my, my parents got us involved very, very, very early. So I think they attended the um, basic and advanced first. And, um, it was in the, I'm going to say, um, early eighties or mid eighties. And um, it was right about the same time that they had just announced um, starting ATI as a homeschooling program. And it was also right before I was going into school. So I was, I think I was five. So I would have been going into, you know, um, kindergarten or first grade. I think they applied when I was in kindergarten and for the pilot program, like the first year that they were going to have. And they only let a hundred families in that first um, pilot year. And then they would, they were planning to expand it afterwards, which they did. So we applied that first year, but because I was in kindergarten, not first grade, they, um, asked us to wait to the second year. So we got in on the second year and, um, and then I grew in it up in it from there. So all, all 12 years of school and into my early adulthood, but they were introduced to it at a basic seminar. So basically I've not ever known anything different. Like that was all, all I remember. Um, I was raised in a Southern Baptist home. We were in church every time the doors were open. So, um, and that was from when my mom and dad were in their singles and then first married. So we kind of grew up in that, but it, it went, ATI kind of led into that real easily because it's very conservative church that they were in. Okay. Okay. Um, although the more conservative end of anything that was at church. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. Your church was conservative. But yeah. then you went to I, 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 IBLP, ATI, and then you were really conservative. <laughs> Ultra into that. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So you were like really little. And so you pretty yeah. much don't remember anything before ATI, no. IBLP. Six years old. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So since you were home, I'm, I'm, you were homeschooled, right? All 12 years. Yeah. Okay. And so, and so did y'all do the ATI curriculum the whole time you were in school? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There wasn't every year that we weren't in it. Um, so we would do, um, mom and dad tried various ways over the years of how they were incorporated the, what they call the wisdom booklets in the training. But usually um, it was the primary source of our 
um, teaching, and then my mom would add to it. So um, the Winston booklet had a section in math, didn't really teach math as far as, you know, um, age-wise, first, second, third grade, fourth, whatever. Um, so we would read the math section in the wisdom booklet, and then she would add the age-appropriate book that she found, usually Saxon math. Um, yeah. We would do that later. So wisdom book was the first thing in the morning, and then we would do um, whatever book she added, English spelling, cursive, um, history type of thing. And so, it, oh. whatever was in the wisdom booklet. So if the wisdom booklet had a history on Charles Spurgeon, then we would study that area of history. Right. Yeah. I remember with my brother, it would be like, it's basically like an outline and yeah. then you, mm -hmm. and then you go and you get resources from the library or whatnot to, to build upon that and yeah. get in depth. Exactly. Through so other resources. Yeah. I do they called wisdom searches in the morning. Um, that was an ATI thing. Um, it was encouraging um, parents to do, to rise early and get their kids up early and do um, you know biblical stuff in the morning, read the Bible or whatever, and we would do that. Okay. Yeah, I do. I remember doing some of that with with my brother when I was home after the Air Force, and yes, so it was basically a different way of saying a Bible study. Exactly, it was a Bible study in the morning, and it usually just went with whatever verse was because the it would go over Matthew five and some other ones I think too in the wisdom booklets. And so we would just follow that or Psalms or Proverbs. That was the favorite for dad. So sometimes we did that instead of the wisdom booklet. <laughs> yeah. I, I, there was a heavy lean again to, towards Psalms and Proverbs in ATI, IBLP, and even the fundamental churches that I was in. It was like, <laughs> almost like if you didn't know what else to read, read that. Yes, exactly. And it's conveniently in the middle of the Bible. So you just flip it open in the middle and, you know, read what you find. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> so I guess, tell me, you know, were there any, was there anything during that whole like homeschool thing that your family struggled with? Or did you, were y'all just like going, plugging along and everything was fine? And, you know, I, they pretty much, my parents pretty much took it hook, line and sinker. So anything that was taught, we were taught. So as far as, you know, any problems with it, they, it was, that was the law. I mean, it just, it is, it was what it was. That's how God uh, viewed us and that's how he taught us. And the, and so pretty much anything that was taught with ATI, even if it was twisted with scripture, was still law. Let me think. Um, as far as problems, um, I don't think. I don't, I didn't really start questioning it until I was a young adult and I mm -hmm. saw it at headquarters. So I didn't even, I was so inundated. I mean, having started at six years old, I didn't know anything else different. So I hadn't been, and we were very isolated. So I didn't really have contact with people outside of um, church. And from about 12 on church was HI families. So it wasn't even like I had another church, other church family people that weren't in ATI that could give me a different perspective. Um, when we moved, when I was 12, we changed churches because of the music issue. Cause so our original church that my mom and dad were married in, uh, brought in drums and, and more uh, what they would call. And so they of course did the whole thing where they made an appeal and all of that. And then, um, decided to leave because the church of course, wasn't going to change for one family asking <laughs> that was ultra conservative. Right. So, we went to a different one and 99.9% um, .9 of those families were HI families, or if they weren't, they still adhered to the same principles. Oh, 
um, so 12 and up, all my teenage years when those, uh, you know, thoughts would have been forming or questions would have been forming, I didn't have any outside in, you know, source because um, that was my only outlet. We, we got to see people on Sundays, but it. Okay. So you really didn't have any like homeschool co-ops or, uh-uh. you know, it was just you and uh- your siblings. Yeah. So in the eighties, the eighties was when, um, homeschooling first started. So there weren't a lot of, um, co-ops available Right, right. now, like they're just huge and there's teachers and you can get all kinds of, um, you know, study help and, you know, it's just very much more organized and very, a large community in the eighties. It was very small. It was a very, um, trendy, edgy thing to do. And, um, there just weren't a lot of groups. Um, and then you add ATI to that as far as conservatism, there, there just wasn't very much at all. So, and then um, there wasn't a lot of options for me to get like tutoring and math or whatever. In my high school years, I had issues with um, with math and a couple of and science because um, my mom couldn't teach it very well. And by that point, she had enough kids that she just kind of handed me the book at the beginning of the year and said, make your own lesson plan, teach yourself this. If you have any problems, you check your own work out of the, you know, like the key. Check yeah. your, out what you did wrong, bring it to me and let me look at it, brought it to her. Nothing ever happened. So uh, I was kind of self-taught after probably 14 Wow. in high school. Mm-hmm. That I, I find that that happens a lot with the older kids, especially when the parents don't have the background to be able to teach. Yeah. Yeah. My dad had the background in math cause he was, he's a stress engineer. So it, it is all math that he does, but he didn't have the time and right. he would try to do it with me in the evenings and um, his patience is very low and he also has some other anger issues. So that it never worked very well. <laughs> I gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah. 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 So, so it ended with me in tears. Also, I'm not mathematically inclined at all. Never have been even with the proper training, even with college classes, I still struggled really hard. My brain just doesn't work with math. <laughs> yeah. I, I can relate. I, um, my math abilities are very limited, so yeah. I I rely heavily on a calculator. But math, no. I'm sorry. Go ahead and say that again. You ask me to write something, no problem. I can I can edit for you. I can write whatever, but I can't do math. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So so I guess you know that really kind of sums up like your homeschool you know experience. So what what happened like did you graduate from high school or how did that work how did that work um so mom and dad didn't want me to get a GED when I graduated high school because I guess they still felt like there was a um stigma against it that you were a high school dropout and so they didn't want me to do that so they said you can take the SATs and um and then you can um have that and we'll give you in Oklahoma it was okay for them to give me a parent um, diploma, which is what the only thing I still have. Um, so they did. We had, now by that time the homeschooling group had gotten big enough that we had um, we we were able to have like a high school graduation with homeschooling group. So high school graduation, we had maybe twenty five people, twenty twenty five people in it. So we did have a little ceremony, but it was just a parent um, diploma. SATs. My SAT scores were great, but I didn't use them toward anything. The general. Um, just that had been taught in ATI as far as college was concerned was that if you sent your children to college, it would, um, you know, cause them to fall away from God, that they would totally turn their back on God. And it was 
dangerous thing for you to do. Like my mom was in mortal fear of it. Like she thought for sure she would lose her children if she sent them to college. Also, I was a girl. So it was more important for guys to go to college than it was for girls because girls were supposed to stay home and have babies and teach their children the same way that we were taught. And so it really wasn't necessary because all I was looking for was a husband. <laughs> so, so that's when I started. So when I got out of high school, I went to their program called Excel. And um, so I worked that whole summer. I graduated and made work that whole summer to earn money to go um, to Excel in the fall. And it was like a two-month program. It was kind of like a girl's finishing school. So mm. a lot of women speakers come. They taught you how to decorate cakes. They had tea parties. They um, they walked for exercise, no running, because it would hurt your woman parts. Um, and then you would be able to bear children. They did lots of other Womanly things like it basically think 1800s, 19, early 1900s girls finishing school. That's what this was. Gotcha. So, um, so I did that. And in the process of, of doing that, um, I was little miss goody two shoes, but my roommate was a normal person. I thought she was rebellious, but she was a normal person (laughs) in this thing and asked to, you know, comply with all their crazy rules. And so of course she didn't because she's a teenager and she's a normal person. So, um, that brought, uh, um, leadership eyes on me because they were trying to, um, help her. And, um, so I got noticed that way. And, um, they, so they ended up calling after I was finished with that program and asked me to come to headquarters. And that's how I got the invitation to go work at headquarters, which, um, I wanted to do some kind of service because a service project or service things I had wanted to be involved in children's institutes, which is a, the kid form of the basic seminar. I'd done a lot of those and I wanted to be on leadership with that because that was the only thing I could see that would be service oriented. And that was all that was left to me after high school anyway, unless I was getting married. So, um, and that was the godly thing to do. So, (laughs) so I, that was what I was interested in, but then they called from headquarters. Headquarters was elite, um, cause you had to be invited to go there. Um, and so when I got that call, that was, that was a huge deal. My mother was very honored. <laughs> oh, I bet. And looking back on it now, it's a little ridiculous, but right. it, it was what in that culture, it, that's what it was. So she was very honored that her daughter was, um, asked to go there. So I went for a year. Mm-hmm. And so I I think I was 19 when I left and it was January and I stayed until December. So that would have been 99. I think it would have been all of 99. Um, The end of 99, my parents were sure the world was going to end at at Y2K. And so they brought me home and I ended up going back a few months later. But that was my first experience, kind of how I got into serving with IBLP on staff at headquarters. So I was in South Korea for Y2K. (laughs) That ought to have been good. (laughs) That was like. Well, if the world ends, then I'm going to be stuck on a different continent. (laughs) A little scary. (laughs) It was mildly, you know, like, yeah, you know, so because, you know, of course, I've got, you know, my mom kind of, you know, worked up about it. You know, I'm I'm in South Korea and, you know, if the planes don't work, I can't get home. So, yes, yes. Yes, because they thought that we had food and uh, we weren't like preppers, like huge preppers, but we had food and everybody was brought home and we were all kept at home for that night. And the world didn't end when yeah. it changed over and we were, they were all mildly surprised. <laughs> I was totally confident that I would not starve because I was in the military I, and we had access to MREs. So 
good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So Okay, so I know that when my brother was in ATI and IVLP that my parents went to Knoxville and I actually went once and I can't remember what year it was. So did your parents do that? Yes. Yeah, they did. So the the program didn't move to Knoxville till um, several years in after it started. So they had different areas. There was, um, I think in 89, it was in Oklahoma City. I think shortly after that, it moved to Knoxville where they had, um, that's when the program kind of exploded and they needed more room for more people. And so they went to the college there in that stadium. Um, so when I was 12, you had to, so any, you couldn't go to Knoxville until you were 12 at, originally. Um, so I went and you had to go, the 12 year olds had to go to the basic and advanced seminar before they could come to Knoxville. So, um, I did that, both of those boring, <laughs> right? so bored as a 12 year old in that and not understanding half of what I was hearing it was right. weird because I was being, I had been taught it since I was six, but there were some things that I had not heard. Um, and then I went to the first Knoxville when I was 12. Um, and then I think by the time I was, I don't, I don't even remember what age I was when they opened it up to kids. It might've been a headquarters already. It was close to that. My parents went about every other year. They couldn't afford to go every year, but, um, it would have been, it would have been close to when I went to headquarters, when they opened it up for kids. Cause my family, um, because I worked, um, Knoxville cause anybody from staff at headquarters worked Knoxville, uh, as staff and helped run things behind the scenes. So I worked it and my family came to Knoxville and saw me there. So I'm trying to think, um, it would have had to been probably 98 was it or 2000 that I went. So let's see, I went and they had kids there that year. Um, I know. Well, see, my sister was born in 97. Okay. 99. So I'm trying to think. I had to be home on leave. Okay. Or it was when I came back in 2002. So maybe it was, maybe it was 2002, right before I went to headquarters that I went. I think, I think it started right around the early, like right around 2000 when they opened it up for kids. Cause I remember okay. discussion at headquarters about, how they were going to organize it and how they were going to handle the masses and, um, you know, who was going to be in charge of the kids while the parents were in the trainings mm -hmm. and how they would split it up with, because they would usually, they usually separated the teenagers, the apprenticeship students, which meant 12 and above, mm -hmm. 12 to 18, uh, separated them from the parents. So they would teach the parents and then they would take the teenagers and teach them somewhere else. And, and then they had a group, kind of Children's Institute style, which was a group, a mixed age group of children. And they, they did kind of that same style at Knoxville. Okay. Yeah. It's, my memory is very foggy. So. About 2000, I think. Yeah. Was. So I think that was probably when I went, um, it might've been 2000, I would have been home from Korea mm -hmm. and then. If they went in 2001 or mm -hmm. 2002, I could have come home. Let's see. I was back home in 2000. 
goodness gracious what year did i get out of the air force so i got out the summer of 2001. it could have been 2001 that i went and that makes sense because it was 2002 that i went up to headquarters so it was either when i was home between coming home from south korea in 2000 or when i got out of the air force in 2001 that we went so um but let's talk about the uniform ah uh, yes <laughs> that lovely uniform oh my goodness i about died in heat stroke so many knoxville's in that thing <laughs> so tell tell us what was the requirement when you went to knoxville to wear you know boys and girls Boys and girls. Okay. So guys were supposed to wear, you know, those white Oxford shirts, okay. dress shirts, and navy blue pants, slacks. And then the girls had to wear um, white blouses and long navy blue skirts. Um, I don't think they could be above your knee. They had to be below your knee. But most of the time, everyone wore ankle length. Um, right. The preferred thing, even though that wasn't written, that was what was expected. An unspoken rule. It was, yes, yes, yes. That's exactly what it was. Mm -hmm. <laughs> called an unspoken rule. Um, and girls had to wear nylons and dress shoes. Guys, you know, dress, sho dress shoes, of course. Well, the good thing about the ankle length skirt is you could get away with knee highs. Yes, yes. And I actually preferred... Um, ankle length skirts they were just easier to move maneuver around in you didn't have to be as careful and uh, they were you could do more things in them um <clears throat> more things but not all things but not all things no <laughs> no um there's a reason i don't very often wear skirts anymore <laughs> uh i'm with you on that one yeah i'm with my, you on that one so my parents i they didn't adhere to that dress code um for girls only girls in skirts only Maybe because it wasn't taught right away when I was about 12. Something happened at a Knoxville. I remember it happening, them coming home with it after a Knoxville. Mom switched her wardrobe from slacks to all dresses. And then um, pretty quickly after that, they asked me to do that because I had just turned 12 and I was starting to become shapely. And that, of course, was had to be covered up. And so they um it but they presented it as a special thing like you get a whole new wardrobe we're gonna take you out and let you pick whatever dress you want you can't wear pants anymore but this is so great because you get a whole all these new dresses so that was um i was leery of it but it, i was like okay so i get new clothes we we lived off of grad south clothes so it was very it was it was rare that i could go shopping with my mom rare that she had time for that rare that yeah. they money for that and so um that it made it special when i was 12. <laughs> I do remember being very annoyed with it, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That sounds kind of like the whole, I'm going to manipulate you to do what oh, I want you to do. Oh, yes. Yes. It was very much parent manipulation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which I kind of get as a parent. But... I do. I mean, I do kind of do that sometimes with, but they're, they're four and six. They're not 12. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's best with their individuality it's for safety purposes <laughs> right right it's not like i want you to adhere to this because i said so it's more like this is a good thing for all humans to do exactly like take a shower or you know brush your teeth <laughs> remind me how many siblings you have i have five so i'm the oldest of six um for now but the um 
yeah, so I'm the oldest of six. There's um, a couple years, there's two to four years between each of us, except the last two, they were real close together. We're less than two years apart. So when they got in, I was the oldest. So everybody grew up in it. So even though they switched, like uh, the side note, but even though they switched me over at 12 to do skirts, that would have been when my, so the next one down is a boy. So it didn't matter for him. And then the next two down are two girls. They would have been five and two. Oh, okay. They they didn't even put them in pants as children. They just they just started them on dresses then. So they didn't different from then on. All the girls were in dresses. So there's yeah, four sisters, so there are four girls and two. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I remember when I was went to Knoxville, my mom and I sewed a bunch of skirts because <laughs> I needed a bunch of skirts, and it's not like I didn't have money. Yeah. The kick pleat for the slits in the mm-hmm. yes. So we were experts at buying skirts for Knoxville or anything for that matter. But because by that time I was already in skirts anyway. But um, yes, but for Knoxville particularly, finding navy skirts was hard to do. And then if you did find them, then usually they, at that point the style was a very straight skirt, which um, was uh, you couldn't have the slit up past you know on the back of your leg because that was an, an eye trap. You know, it make you look at your legs instead of at your beautiful countenance. And so we had to sew, um, we had to sew a kick pleat in, which means you just basically put, you know, the material on the back of it so that nobody could see when you, you know, that way you could still Yeah, and you could walk. still walk and not trip and fall on your face. Yes. <laughs> you still look like a penguin. But. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But that, yes, that was. But at least you weren't a half-dressed penguin. Exactly. At least nobody was at your calves, you know, peekabooing through the slit. <laughs> yes, because I mean, if you had a knee length skirt, the calves would be showing anyway. But if you're in a ankle length skirt, it's important yeah. to not show your calves. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I know there were some families even that took it so far as to don't show your ankles. We didn't take that it that far. But yeah, that's a bit extreme. It was a big, yes. <laughs> And you, that's extreme for the extremists. <laughs> yes. So the uniform for the students was navy. Now, um, there were some other, um, as years went on, they could, you could wear khaki and some other colors. But usually it was if you were, like, serving in a certain area, if you were, um, if you were doing a certain activity at Knoxville. So the lower, the lower class jobs. Yes. Yes. Because there was a hierarchy. There very much was a hierarchy. Yeah. Yeah, they, they yeah. claim it, but there was. Oh, for sure, for sure. And you had to distinguish between them. Yes. So let me just kind of dive into that. So how, I mean, so you grew up with wearing pants, and then at 12, you mm-hmm. changed to skirts. How did you feel about that between, like, being 12 and, like, going out on your own. I know you went to headquarters, but you know, like, was there any moment in that time where you were like, this is kind of weird? Um, I don't, I think that I knew that we were different looking. I knew that we believed different and that we looked strange from everyone else. I think my first clue with that, I'll tell you a story about this. So my family moved a lot when we were kids because my dad just moved us, his job moved us a lot of places. And so we went from Oklahoma to California, LA, California. Oh, okay. So 
including a family that has that's wearing all long skirts and often very um full skirts to LA we stick out like sore thumbs so um so and we're new to the area and we're homeschoolers and we're, we're just strange we had gone to a homeschooling group in California at a park to meet everyone to see if this was something we wanted to do and I was talking with some of the girls there they were not ATI. They were just normal homeschooling people. So she says, so do does everyone there wear that? Because I was wearing like this plaid, uh, very full gathered skirt, ankle length. And, um, and I said, no. I said, no, but this is just how I dress. And she's like, so not nobody in Oklahoma, no, no, but not everybody wears skirts like that. And I said, no. She's like, do you like drive around in wagons or like? Is- oh, my gosh. He's like, she really thought <laughs> that people from Oklahoma were still living prairie days because that's what she saw me looking. Right. That's what she identified my outfit as. Oh, wow. Being extremely rude. And I was far too naive to pick up on it. Not sure which. Right. <laughs> it's probably a little both. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. Maybe. Well, you know, I mean. <laughs> Kudos to her if she was being rude because that was really smooth. I mean, come looking at it now, that was really smooth. <laughs> Wait, right over your head. Yeah. It, I was like, I'm so confused. No, no, this is how we dress. But not everybody there is. And we don't have Indians and TPs anymore, thanks. And we right. don't in, in, you know, prairie schooners. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's hilarious. Or that's a testament to how she was homeschooled. Yes. Yes, so that would, that would also give you a good comparison of what homeschooling back then, what the normal homeschooling was, and then what ATI homeschooling was. Right. Um, we were really, really naive. I didn't. My social skills were very, very low because I didn't have enough exposure to people or even other people of my age. So even if even in my church, there was only two other girls my age. So mm. when I first started going there. There were only three twelve-year-old girls there. So if they grew from there, but still only a church of maybe 200 people and not a lot of kids my age. So, and that's actually quite a big church for, you know, a fund or a conservative Baptist church. Yes, it was. Yeah. So, um, didn't have a lot of outside influence that I can compare with. So I didn't, I knew we were weird. So to answer your question, I feared, I knew that we were different but I don't, I didn't really fight it. I didn't buck the rules because I, um, if I did usually, um, I had been told so many stories as a child that if children defied what their parents told them, they were out from under the relevant authority and would probably get struck by lightning or their eyes would get put out or some really, really bad bitten by a snake, really, really bad, bad stuff happened to you. If you questioned anything, not just defied it if you even questioned it so i i didn't buck the rules i didn't even let my mind go there yeah that's that's a little bit more intense than i got i mean but i was an adult Mm -hmm. you know and so it was more like if anything bad happens to you it's god's judgment so if you get a you get a cold if you break your leg you know if you get into a car accident you obviously were outside of god's will or out from underneath your umbrella of protection you know there were regularly there were books of stories that ati uh, published and um you know sold to families 
that had stories like this where children did something outside of didn't obey the parent immediately it wasn't just didn't obey the parent didn't obey the parent immediately like instantaneous obedience and something bad happened or um or they they didn't obey and got into something and then something happened to them that made their made made them lose their eyes or we were regularly told those stories I'm trying to think there was these books that the lamplighter books, did y'all read a lot of those? Remember what they were called? That sounds familiar. A lot of them were missionary stories. They were stories of great uh, men of faith, but the stories were twisted to mean what they wanted them to mean. Right. Just like scripture was. Yes. (laughs) Let's, let's take something and twist it to make it. Yes. Let's take a good witness of a really godly person. Let's just twist a little bit and make it, you know, this yeah yeah let's you know um brainwash and manipulate and gaslight yeah exactly though i don't think i really other than being annoyed all the time that 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 it limited what i could do with the clothing Mm -hmm. limited what activities i could take part in it limited my ability to move and just you know all of that um i didn't really question it i didn't question it until i was till I was kind of breaking out of ATI at the end of my term um, at headquarters when I started realizing that something was up and something was wrong and that, you know, it wasn't following real life. It just became disillusioned with it. So I, um, I started sneaking out. I would wear pants under my skirts out and then take my skirt off whenever I was doing activities outside. My sisters were probably eight and 10 or maybe 10 and 12 at the time. Mm-hmm. So when I came home, my parents told me that was absolutely not allowed. They didn't like what I was doing, black sheep, and that I could not let my siblings, my sisters know because I was leading them down to the, the path of unrighteousness. Like I was, they would, you know, not follow Jesus and would lose their salvation if they followed in my footsteps for not wearing a skirt. So, um, yeah, that's a good burden to put on a child. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I was, 24 at the time, but I didn't, I was still very much probably at 18 year old level because I was so naive. (laughs) So yes, that they, they laid a huge burden on me as far as my responsibility for my um, siblings, spiritual safety. So I would put them on under, or I would, I had a quick trip down the road for me and I would go the quick trip and I would change (laughs) my skirt into my pants and I would go to my church activity in my pants <laughs> in my <laughs> ways, and then I would stop on the way back home and put my skirt back on and come home. They told me later, funny, funniness, but they told me later they knew what I was doing. Like they totally figured it out. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But my breaking out of it at 24 led them to break out of it at 18 and then at 16. And by the time we got to the youngest daughter, number six, she didn't even have to deal with that. She got to where she didn't, she wasn't in ATI. So it started breaking the mold. I started breaking the mold and it set them free quicker and quicker. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, that's pretty interesting. Um, so w- when you went to Knoxville as, I guess, a student, uh-huh. what, what did you do like, I know when I went, there was like these classes that you took or whatever. Yeah. Sessions. Yeah. Sessions. Right. Um, so usually they had um, morning sessions for the students. And then the afternoon usually had either maybe one more. They might split you up like guys did one session, girls did another session. 
and then they would have choir practice in the afternoon. They like to have all the students together in the front singing. There are thousands and thousands of students. Honestly, it was quite impressive. It but was. They would do the choir practice in the afternoon, and then the evenings were families together. So um, usually it was joint um, trainings in the morning. Right. I remember being in that really big auditorium and all of the students were in like for the choir. Yes. And the parents were in different places and then they had like a speaker and then yeah. the students would sing. And it's, it's very like few. And, and I remember walking on campus and seeing all of the sea of Navy and white and was just like, this is weird. Weird. It was so when the so speaking of navy and white, when the choir was up back there because we were required to wear those uniforms, it was a sea of white shirts, mm -hmm. navy, they white tops and navy bottoms. So yes, and we would the bigger it got as years went on, we would kind of overtake the town. Also, <laughs> <Right. laughs> you know, we kind of overtook the town. They were everywhere, um, and usually the um, the students had breakout sessions at different areas of the campus. So quite often we had to either bus or walk miles to get to the breakout sessions away from where the parents were. Oh, okay. Um, That's just weird. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I have thought, and this is a side note, we can add this later or not. Mm -hmm. We can edit it out. I have often wondered, there were a few times when we had sessions at Knoxville when I was an older teen that I thought, I wonder if the parents know that we're being told this. Something doesn't feel right about what they're telling us or what they're asking us to commit to. And it it wasn't, um, mind you, I was taught to obey. So I thought all of this was law, but my spirit reacted and I was um, nervous and confused and a little concerned. And looking at it, back at it as an adult and, and also as a parent, um, some of the things that we were being taught should never have been given to the teenagers. I am positive that my parents did not know what we were being taught. And if they did, they probably would have bucked it. Even though they didn't buck very much from ATI, there were several things that we were taught in those breakout sessions at Knoxville that they would have said, mm. <laughs> no. <laughs> so do you have any re recollection of anything in particular? Um, I'm trying to think of, I mean, I say that I'm trying to think of a specific thing. Um, I don't have specific, mm -hmm. um, things that we are asked to do. I just remember being asked to make a lot of commitments or vows. Oh, the vows. So, um, and I just remember my spirit being concerned about it. Just that my heart didn't feel right. Mm -hmm. Right, because why would you have a child make a vow when they're supposed to be under their parents' authority? Exactly. And I know that it did concern my parents at one point. And I don't think it was after a Knoxville seminar. They also had seminars called counseling seminars. And they were a week long and they were in Indianapolis. And the, the counseling seminar was required for almost anything that you wanted to do as far as service. So if you wanted to serve with... I went to that. I remember that. Seminar. So it was kind of like the basic seminar for the um, teenagers. So um, I remember there was there was commitments and vows pushed really hard at that one, and I remember having more of a resistance to a lot of those. And I think I came back and told mom and dad about it, and they um, there is a verse that says, or there's a teaching that says that in the day that the father hears about it. 
if he if if it's not a good vow or isn't a good commitment, then he can release you from that, mm-hmm. um, from God holding you to that. Yeah, I remember that. It was a teaching. I'm not sure where it comes from, but it was a teaching. Okay. So I remember my dad coming to me um, one night and at bedtime and said, "Okay, so what all did they ask you to commit to? Can you remember? Can you tell me? Is there any part of it that you want released from, or that I need to release you from?" Because I'm concerned that you committed too many things. Oh. Um, and I think maybe one with one concern was I think you had to stay single for a certain amount of time. <laughs> so um, I do remember him asking that. The thing was, is that we were pushed so hard to do it. And we made so many that when he asked me that, I couldn't remember what all I had committed to. I was like, I don't remember all of it. I said that there were lots of them that I didn't want to make, but that I felt like I had to make. And so eventually, after several going back and forth of that, he said, okay, well, we're just going to pray over the whole thing and release you from the whole thing. <laughs> just for him. And because uh, they really thought God's judgment would come down on my head if if I had made a commitment and didn't keep it. Well, yeah. I mean, that so, was, I mean, I, you know, I mean, if you believed in that and, you know. Yes. That was a good thing for him to do, you it, know. To do so, but that was the one and only time I I um saw my dad buck the system. With- oh, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. So um, I know when right before I came, they had and I don't know if you would remember this. Um, they had ATI staff members that would go to each house, and I think I talked about this in my episode where they would do like a men's meeting or something or a family meeting, and they would um discuss all the different um programs and really outreach that they had like i think they talked about the children's institute a lot yeah. because they were trying to push that internationally and nationally to get yeah. them you know out everywhere um do you recall your family being involved in any kind of stuff like that um, I know they had monthly uh, men's meetings. Um, I think that started pretty early on in the program, um, because I think it was part of their accountability for the families to keep connected with the families and get the families connected together in their towns. I think that okay. started as, um, I don't remember, uh, students or, or headquarters people going to those meetings and, um, you know, kind of marketing the different programs, but it could have been done. Like they were doing all kinds like that i just never didn't hear of it in my area i gotcha oh <laughs> i don't know i was like i know there was a staffer there and that's how i got into headquarters <laughs> so i just don't remember what he was at our house for <laughs> and typically speaking men's meetings were men's only i i think it was something like they had the men's meeting and then they were talking after oh okay so, yeah because I do remember mom talking about dad going to those meetings and she couldn't go because it was men's only thing. That's so weird, but okay. It's very pants maid's tale or utopian niche type of, what is that other one that does that same thing? Yes. I don't, the hands made, uh, handmaid's tale. Oh yeah. my God. The thing is like, this could have been us. Oh, uh, when it first came out, I could only take one episode at a time because it was mm-hmm. so triggering. So oh. triggering. It could have been us. Like, yeah, I hey, had a. You take ATI. You take that. You take ATI one step further, and you make it all the United States. Yeah. Yep. yep. With it's a crazy's yeah. in there. 
Dr. Gothard, and yeah, totally could have been done. Oh That's God. what's so scary about it. I know. When it's supposed to be so far-fetched that with a little bit of truth in it that it could never happen, but I lived it. <laughs> I mean, not to that extreme. But no, no. And, you know, it's like... The mindset, the thought, the biblical part of it, the what, how they keep them in line with the Bible, that is all real. Oh, for sure. For yeah. sure. I mean, you might not have the threat of death by a, a human being, but you definitely have threat of death by, you know, a deity that is going to come kill you if you, you know, <coughs> if yeah. you don't, you know, cow down, you know, bow down and follow yes. the, the, the letter of the law. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And they didn't, they didn't quite make us like keep men, women from reading, but uh, they certainly put us in our place. <laughs> Well, I mean, almost, I mean, because, you know, you were supposed to do it with your husband or, you know, you're supposed to basically anything you believed in, you'd have to bring to your husband or your father, yep. whatever male person yep. is in charge of you. Yeah. I um, often for, for those of people that don't understand that any of this at all, I quite often tell them that, okay, so if you're familiar with Catholicism and. Uh, or the basics of it, and you have a priest, and you have to go confess to the priest to get any kind of forgiveness from God, that is kind of what this works like. Like, you have to go to your dad, and your dad speaks to God on your behalf. Like, th there's no, you know. Right. You, the, you're, the authority is your middleman between you and God. Yes. Yes. Even that was confusing to me as a child, too, because as Southern Baptists, we don't believe that. Southern Baptists, you have direct line to God. You can you can pray to him. You don't have anybody between you. So that it was a weird mix of yeah. that. And then what the church was teaching me as far as that I could, you know, and also they taught that you could, you know, talk to him whenever you wanted, but also he's going to, you know, shoot you if, or make something horrible happen to you. If you didn't know. Right. Him. Yeah. <laughs> you could talk to him, but you better check that you're right about what you think he's saying to you with your authority, because you might be wrong. Exactly. And therefore you can never trust yourself. Also, you can trust your sixth sense about things. So, um, like when I was in those sessions and said, something doesn't feel right. I couldn't trust myself because I wasn't, um, couldn't, wasn't allowed to. Which is going to lead into a future episode where we talk about how the teachings set up people to be abused. Exactly. Like, cause you can't trust your own mind. Nope. So we will dive into that in another episode. So I think we're going to go ahead and wrap this one up. I think we kind of got a feel for Marcy's experience and up until pretty much we're, we're kind of telling our story up until we both were at headquarters and we're going to kind of go into the next episode about our experience at headquarters. She had a lot more than I did, but um, we did meet there and kind of just kind of give you like a um, overview of the culture there of, you know, the different jobs, the different sections and different leadership. And we're going to, we're going to have some fun with that one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's my favorite part of the story. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one where you meet me. So, exactly. so yeah, it's the best. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us this week on the umbrella rebellion. We hope that you will come back next week and join the rebellion. Y'all have a great day.